I'm George. I'm Tommy. We're here for, uh, I guess it's episode 19 of AmateurLogic.tv. And uh, we're at the Capital City Ham Fest here in Jackson, Mississippi. Tommy, what's on your shopping list for the Ham Fest this year? Well, i got to get my, my usual bag of PL259 connectors for sure. And uh, I'm looking for some kind of a portable HF antenna to set up for my travel trailer. Cool. Well, I've got a few things on my list, too, mostly small items, um, some connectors, like you said, uh, spencillators, a ballon, uh, just a few little odds and ends. Yeah, it's not a ham fest without a bag of PL259s. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> All right, well, let's go have a look. We're walking around here just looking for familiar faces and characters and such at the Ham Fest. And look who I ran into. <laughs> Wonder who it is. Hello, Wayne. How are you doing, George? Pretty good. We've had a lot of comments from the folks about the MFJ uh, footage that you shot earlier this year. As a matter of fact, I was talking with Richard a while ago over at the MFJ booth, and he said they've had a lot of comments about it, too. We really appreciate you coming along for that and helping out. Well, I'm glad I could help. I'd be glad to do it again if need be. All right. Well, don't run away then. <laughs> we may need you here in a few minutes. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I found a rig here, a TS430. I bought one of these at the Ham Fest last year for 250 bucks. It was an excellent deal. And uh, that's what I'm going to pay for this one if it works. We're going to go to the test bench and check it out. Yeah, it's probably pushing that power. Well, let me try a couple of them. Go ahead. Do it again. Well, I appreciate it. Oh, he's warm up. And I run across another familiar face here at the Ham Fest, Richard Stubbs. Richard. Hey, George. How's it going? Nice to see you. Good to see you again. We've had a lot of folks comment on the videos we shot at MFJ. We have, too. We've been down to Florida and St. Louis, Missouri, and people have commented on your videos, and they say how professional your show is, and I have to agree. I was real pleased with how that turned out. Well, we really appreciate y'all hosting that event there and allowing us to come in and tape some of it because uh, people all over the world have been watching them, and we've really got some good response. And it's great. I mean, I appreciate it more than anything, and we, we hope to tie that into our website soon. We're just getting a little lazy there doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we hope you will. You know, any publicity for either of us is a good thing. Yes, so. sir. All right. Good to see you, and I hope you have a good ham fest here. Good to see you, George. Take care of yourself. All right. This is uh, what's referred to as boat anchors here, some old Collins gear. 
And I'm not real familiar with these units, but man, they look immaculate. They look almost like they just came off the showroom floor. Some guys would really like to have this stuff here. I wouldn't mind having it either, but I don't have a big enough shack to keep it in. We're talking with AFN5MZX here of the Flying Pigs Association. And what does Flying Pigs specialize in? Fun, fun, fun. We have no dues, no rules. If you don't like what we do, we'll change it. And uh, we are the, uh, the fun side of the amateur radio uh, group. We're an Internet club, solely Internet. It was founded in 1999 by Diz Gentile and, and some other, uh, he was W8PIG, great call. And uh, the Flying Pigs is basically an in-your-face thing to QRO folks. When we would talk about working so many different countries, the QRO operators would say, yeah, when pigs fly, guy. The Flying Pigs are known to do a lot of crazy things. And my wife said that when I leave here, I'll go back to the uh, insane asylum and I can come back tomorrow and pass. <laughs> Membership is open to anybody who lives within 12,000 nautical miles of Cincinnati, Ohio. That's the only qualification. If you're alive and breathing, you can be a member. Okay, so I, I see you've got a number of, uh, I guess these are home-built rigs here and kits. Uh, we see the Altoids 10. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we've had some of our members uh, bring in kits that they've built. This is an absolute homebrew 40-meter transceiver that was built. And if you'll notice the paint job, it's the old Heathkit paint scheme, which is great. This is a Small Wonder Labs SW30, which is one that I've just recently built. This key right here is a home-built paddle that's used with this radio. This is a Rockmite transceiver with battery pack, and this is an old Radio Shack enclosure. All right, over here, this is the L-Craft 20-watt dummy load, which is an excellent kit for somebody that wants to start building. This is a Talo SWR bridge. You either have a good a good SWR or the LED lights. When the LED is out, you're, you're cool. I mean, you're ready to go. This is my favorite kit of all. This is a frequency mite um, pick-based uh, frequency counter. Okay, it's a pick microcontroller in there. That's then. correct. And it can be integrated into any of these transceivers by setting the settings on it or it can be used as a standalone frequency counter. Here I have an old MFJ207 uh, SWR analyzer which is basically an oscillator and I'm using it to put on here. If I push this red button you'll have the frequency read out in Morse code. That's pretty neat. How much does it cost to, to build that frequency counter? This is a little $20 kit. Wow. And the Altoid can, 10 was bummed. Um, one of the things we're going to try to do this year with the registration packet, in every packet there's an Altoid's 10. 
next year we want all our participants to either home brew a rig or build a kit. Whether it works or not, bring it back here. We're not judging anything. Anybody who attempts to get to build a kit, we're going to throw their names in the hat and we're going to have a nice kit like an SW30 or an MMR40 to give. We're trying to promote kit building and bring back some of the old-time amateur radio into a appliance world. Well, I, I like building stuff myself, so I might have to uh, take you up on that offer. I've, I've got a, a lot of old Altorch tins saved up right now. Some I've already built things in, but uh, well, that's a great idea. Altoid tin, the cockroach of uh, amateur radio enclosures. So, uh, you know, they're cheap. Uh, everybody at work donated these tins I'm giving out this time. We're giving out 75 of them. And hope to have that much response uh, next year at the Ham Fest. I'm sure the folks at Altoids are <laughs> proud to see you coming too. Oh yeah, and of course everybody's breath is much better too, you know. So, uh, yeah, but they make a great enclosure. Um, you can get other tins. I've seen them in little craft stores that you can use. Uh, Jim N5IB last year had all the fine wooden enclosures which you saw last year. Uh, there are just any number of ways that uh, I have a uh, Coors uh, two-and-a-half liter keg at home. I'm debating on putting a radio in. So, uh, you know, w we have fun with nothing. Thanks for talking with us, Thanks Seth. I appreciate it, and you got a great show. Well, thank you. We're talking with Bucky Greer here at WB5LXZ. Bucky, good to see you here at the Ham Fest. How you doing? Glad to be here. Tell us about this gear. Well, this was General MacArthur's personal radio on the battleship Missouri at the signing of the armistice in World War II. Wow. And if you believe that. <laughs> no, this is some real classic uh, equipment that's kind of hard to find now. This is an SX-28, it's a World War II uh, radio, and uh, very popular, uh, probably the top general coverage radio that we had. Helicrafter? World War II. Yeah, Helicrafter, SX-28. Yeah, this is the uh, Collins 51J4, very, very rare. Just can't find these anymore. Didn't even see one at Dayton. This one's complete with all the filters. And, uh, nice radios. This is a Helicrafter SX-42. I've seen a lot of these in old movies. Well, this went on the worldwide de-expedition, famous expedition around the world in uh, 1947. And this particular model did. Very, very popular with Helicrafter back then. These are all general coverage receivers amateur shortwave bands so uh people have all been restored except this one this one's original these have all been restored of course all these are tube type gears and most hams would really like to have them and you can take them home with you tonight <laughs> no looking at the prices i really can't tonight package deal package deal maybe tomorrow yeah. we'll see what happens thank you buck thanks for coming by yeah you know med lowry n5xn we're out of Baton Rouge and out of the uh, Amateur Radio Society at LSU. So what we're going to talk about today is working with surface mount. You know, and small is better. You know, it's a, it works out great. This is a typical little SMK1 kit. It was put out by NorCal QRP a good while ago. I don't think you can order it anymore. But it was a chance for people to first get their hands wet with SMT because everybody's so worried about surface mount products. They're too small, you can't do it, you need really special tools and whatever. And it's not the case, as we'll see today. 
So we're going to start out with a surface mount project from start to finish. So this isn't a kit deal where you run out to NorCal or somebody else or the Flying Pig guys in the North Georgia Club and buy a kit. This is you're going to build your own PC, lay out a PC board, build a PC, etch, lay it out, etch it, and then start mounting parts on it. We'll show you how to do that. So we're going to do a schematic diagram, just a real quick thing, a circuit board layout, and we'll go through the whole etching process, and you'll actually see the board etch, uh, and then we'll prep the board and get it all ready for the surface mount component installation. So we've laid out a little simple board. This is a, one of Jim's N5IB's projects for a little RS-232 interface, uh, just a simple MAX-232 level converter and a few uh, capacitor, chip capacitors uh, and, a, and a little header coming off of it. So it's a very simple project. Now, really simple tools to do do-it-yourself PC boards. An iron, just a standard household iron, actually a dumb iron. You don't want a steam iron, quite frankly. It's what, it should be variable temperature, though. Uh, we're going to use the toner transfer method, so we can use a laser, you know, we can't use an inkjet printer, but we can use a laser printer or a photocopier. If Jim likes to use, in particular, press and peel. Press and peel is a specific blue paper that's made for this process by the Technics company. It's fairly expensive if you think about a sheet, eight and a half by 11 sheets, about a buck and a quarter a sheet in quantities of five. Get a little bit cheaper as you buy a pack of 10 or a pack of 20. A pack of 20 would probably last the average ham three or four ham lifetimes at least. What he's going to do then, once he gets this neat blueprint out of his circuit, he's going to take a piece of PC board. Now notice he's got four of these little circuits, real small. He's got four of them built on this one, one piece of copper, and then he'll cut it at the end to have all four units. So take that, really needs to be absolutely clean. You want all the oils and finger oils off, handle it with the edges of the board, scrub it really hard with plenty of, you know, plenty of Brillo rubbing and Comet or something that's abrasive, it'll really clean and shine up that copper and get it spotless. Clean it all off because you're still gonna have a little bit of oil, even for the residue from the Comet and all that kind of stuff, or a, or a Brillo pad. So clean it all with a little bit of alcohol or a little bit of acetone and let it evaporate off very quickly. Then you're going to place that you know, transfer film with the toner side down. In other words, you've printed on it by the printer. You're going to flip it so that the toner side is touching the copper, and you've got a little sandwich there. And you can see the whole size of this thing. That's a dime in the foreground. You want to use a fairly hot iron, and you have to experiment with this. You're going to mess up a, a couple chances here when you first start out, depending on the iron you're using. Once you've got it down to, you know, I've used this iron before and I know what to do, you probably will get yourself in trouble if you're using the wife or the girlfriend's iron. So uh, generally doesn't ruin the iron, but uh, you could, so be careful and go invest in one. You do not want a cotton setting in this particular iron uh, that was shown here works pretty well, but you do need to experiment and you don't want to use steam. You're going to press a piece of paper. Steam is going to turn into water, right? And uh, you don't want that, you're going to have a mess on your hands. <clears throat> so what we typically do is put, also put a piece, of, a piece of paper, you've got that little sandwich of the press and peel material. Now that press and peel I mentioned a while ago is kind of expensive and you don't have any today and you need to run down and you know, you're, I know when you leave here you're probably going to leave the ham fest and go run home and build a PC board. You know, it's just, it's the dying need to do that and you don't have any press and peel in the, in the place. This is the place you can use your QST magazine sheets or any other glossy slick type of magazine. Cut a sheet out of that thing and use it and print right on top. The ink that's already on that won't matter. It's only going to be the toner that's on top of that that'll actually work. And people do that all the time. It's a cheap way to do it. And it's a place to use 78% of the magazine since it's mostly advertising, right? Buy yourself a little cheap piece of glass or a mirror, something like that, that it'll work really well. And, uh, and it's going to be absolutely smooth. It's not porous at all. You're not gonna, it's going to really work out. Just keep it clean. You, know, you don't want bumps in this thing. So what you're going to do then is take this with modest pressure, move that iron over that whole sandwich area for about five minutes. 
and you can experiment with your time and your iron and your temperature, you know, as it goes. So once you finally get that done and you let the board cool for a few minutes to, so you can really handle it because it does get warm, you can just start running cool water over it. And as you run that cool water, it's going to start loosening up that blue p uh, paper or, or whatever paper, the QST magazine paper, whatever. Just kind of start teasing up an edge of that paper a little bit and then run water behind the paper in between it and the board. And it'll slowly but surely, you'll be able to separate that entire piece of film or paper right off the board. At the end, you should have a fairly nice clean pattern, ready to go to do our actual etching process. Here's your chemistry lesson for the week. I know you knew you were going to come to a ham fest and get a chemistry uh, a lesson. Most of the time, you've probably done in the past, if you've ever done any PC work or school or whatever else, they've used ferric chloride as the etching solution. We've kind of gone to a case of using two parts of just standard drugstore hydrogen peroxide. It's 3% solution, so nothing special here. Get it from any Walmart, you know, the Walmart uh, drug area or whatever else and one part of hardware store or pool supply store of muriatic acid. Muriatic acid is actually, it's a 30% solution of hydrochloric acid. Now you do need some precision equipment to measure this stuff. You need some kind of little bowl to do your etching in, and you need a really precision measuring device. That's probably the hard thing to get. A little pill bottle will work just fine. You know, so you don't need much. It's all two parts to one. It's not exactly two ounces or whatever else, simply two parts to one, any little measuring device will work right here. So the precision thing isn't really necessary. Do it outside, just as a safety thing, so if you knock it over on the floor, you're not going to get beat up by, by the, uh, the loved ones or whatever. And also, always make sure you put the peroxide in first, followed by the acid, standard uh, high school chemistry lesson there. The process took around 10 minutes, and as you can see, from, from nothing to the board going into the soup, starting to prep itself and suddenly you see a little bit of etching, a little bit more etching, and slowly but surely we've etched off all the copper except for where that blue tone, where that, excuse me, it's not blue anymore, it's just the toner and the paper is still there, and the toner that's been transferred to the board. So now we have a really neat PC board. Now, the, now where, we, where we've protected everything, we've got that toner on there, right? So we need to clean that toner off because we want to solder to this board and we're not going to do very well through that toner. Acetone, uh, you know, just standard nail polish remover. You can buy jugs cheaper rather than buying acetone in a bottle. Buy a can of it in the paint supply areas of uh, most of the Home Depots and things in Lowe's, and then you can buy it for a couple bucks and get a, you know, a, a quart of the stuff. Everybody, everybody, everybody needs a funny-looking goose-shaped surface mount holder down or doofus. We should all say that at one time, but you'll all. Now that's a, that's what that is—a funny-looking goose-shaped. Surface mount, holder down or doofus. You've got to have something to hold these parts because you're going to try to hold solder in one hand, a soldering iron in the other, and you've got a part that's sliding around on the board, right? <laughs> so nothing more than a little bamboo skewer. Uh, Jim loves this, uh, this model of the, uh, of the guy, and I actually brought one, left it in the car because we got so uh, delayed with trying to find an extension cord today. Um, but uh, you can also bend one completely out of some piano wire or something other. But this is just a little skewer. He files off the end a little bit, so he has a little flat surface there little sliding fishing weight on it, and you can either glue that or just have a force fit, and just a hot glued piece of stiff wire. So for installing two terminal components, we want to tin, like we said before, especially on a homebrew board, we're going to tin our, tin our uh, pads. This is blown up. There's not a lot of solder there, but it's blown up pretty big. If you have a pair of tweezers, uh, you can use that to position, hold and position your part to get it in place. And of course, you can, after you lay your part in place, use your doofus, right? You've got to have a doofus. To, to hold that part uh, in position over the pads and then solder one end, take your doofus away, and solder the other end. Just light touch of solder. 
Now, when you're starting to install components with many close space leads, there's three ways of doing it. You can do it the careful method. You can do it the slobber and clean method. And you can do it with the pace reflow method. You, know, you may want to, at this point, pin at least one corner, like pin one of a chip or something or other, just one, one of the corners, and then go ahead and solder it in place. Then you can get the doofus out of the way, go ahead and solder the other opposite corner, and then after that you can take your time and just apply a little bit of heat, and typically I try to apply heat down here to the, you know, at the trace level, right at the base down far away from the pins, and then let that solder wick its way to the pin. Or you can use the slobber method. Now normally the slobber method is a discovered method. You went to do the clean method, and you turned into using enough solder to build two or three houses. You know, you know, it's a big welding job. And you find out, oh my God, I have put solder all over every pin in this thing. So we want to clean that up, take that solder wick, and if the solder wick has turned dry on you a little bit, you can always take and kind of reflux it a little bit. That's the cheap way to do it. Don't run down and buy some more. If you've got some wick, go ahead and smooth out a little bit of that uh, flux on it to get, you, you know, get it so it'll draw better. And then you can clean that up to make it look like that. Now, we have the third method is the solder paste or the reflow method. Yeah, let me show you this process here. Now, if you, that, this is a little embossing gun, heating gun case. All he's doing is spraying hot air. And slowly but surely, you kind of watch, see how that started flowing out? As a matter of fact, the Amateur Logic guys are taking the video today. They did one of these uh, on, on, uh, for a, a demo and showed the parts. And some of the parts, if they're even crooked, they'll automatically just snap themselves into place. It's really cool. It's not cool, though, when the, it snaps itself in place, but it pulled itself over to another pad. <laughs> right? <laughs> I saw that one, too. Wise man once reminded us all, you get what you inspect, expect what you get, no matter how screwy you look. And that's Jim. Examining a board, check your work very, very carefully. Like I said, those parts could move over. It might have, you know, when you move the, even moving the board to get it in position. Um, they, uh, so even no matter how nerdy you are, use a magnifier and check your work. Okay, just real quick, wrap up. You know, this is an ATS-3A I mentioned it before. I think there's a 3B model out now. It was developed by and designed by Steve Weber, 81JV, the consummate uh, QRP developer. This, and this is uh, the one over here to the right. There's actually two kits. This is the NorCal FCC-1, which is a frequency counter. Uh, the other side of the card actually has a, uh, LCD, you know, an LCD readout. It's really, really nice. Very accurate freak counter up to maybe 40, 50 megahertz of megacycles. So when it comes to surface mount components, as you all know now, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah, what is this thing right here with the paper tape? Grout that uh, was used Probably the 30s, 40s, and 50s is used for Morse code instruction, etc. All your, if you notice, the tape has little holes punched in it yep. that matches Morse code characters. Uh, yeah. And as it's pulled through the caps in here, it trips the little arm off, and it gives you your dots and dashes you're looking for with your Morse code. Now this particular model has got an audio amplifier built onto it, therefore you don't have to add an external amplifier; it'll automatically generate the tones for you. Now this model down here is really this is a telegraph model here with a three post mm -hmm. same thing here only rather than using a you know an electric motor you wind it up like a Victrola wow. and, you, and you got your speed regulation let's slow it I don't have the tape on this one but the same principle worked on this one here now somebody did get a little ingenious and they put a, an old vacuum tube in the back of it however <laughs> that's for the amp uh-huh you put your headphones on that and this right is down here is an old Viking one. That's what you call a boat anchor right there. 
And I've got some guys from Alabama wanted it last year, and I told them I had one at the house. I said, bring it with, with me this time. So I did. I, I don't really have a uh, well-thought-out, insightful um, presentation. But um, I'm Andy Anderson, WB5TTE, and um, I've been afflicted with the ham bug for a number of years. Um, I think probably about uh, 77 was when I got my first license. Um, did a little CB before that. I do everything backwards myself. I, actually, I was a Mars operator in Vietnam working with uh, Collins equipment and great big amplifiers and great big antennas long before I ever got my ham license. So I kind of backed into it. Then I came home, realized what I could afford and started out with a kit. Uh, but uh, what is ham radio? It's a hobby. It's uh, a service. It's licensed by the federal government. Um, lots of people are, are hams. You'd be surprised. We've got doctors and lawyers and bankers and business people and students, autom automotive technicians, and just a lot of good people. Um, some of the things we do, we have um, nets, and we talk on the, on the repeater uh, weekly, monthly, different, different nets. We have clubs. Um, Personally, the things that I really enjoy is I like contests. Um, I really enjoy public service events, and I'm up to support any kind of emergency. You know, I've always um, fallen out to help whenever there was a tornado, hurricane, or something of that nature. I, I spent um, several hours at FEMA during uh, Hurricane Katrina trying to get people off of roofs and all that kind of good stuff. You can collect cards and try to make uh, DX contests. But uh, ham radio is so much more today. It's not any one thing. Um, some of us still enjoy Morse code. Um, we have moved into the digital age. There's a lot of opportunities for people that enjoy computers more and want to operate digital. There's uh, a number of modes, PSK, um, Pactor, different modes. That doesn't mean much to you if you're, if you're new, but they're out there. You type on your computer. It comes up on the screen. You can see the other person's call. It's a really a, a, an interesting mode. It's fast-paced, and it's real clean copy, and it's a little, little more impersonal uh, than talking to someone. Uh, some of us just like to rag you. Get out there and find a friend and talk to them. And, and, uh, we also have uh, repeaters two-meter repeaters talk to talk locally. There's a lot of very interesting people you'll meet in ham radio. We have a few with us today. Um, these gentlemen put on some um, great, great video, and it's out there on the web, and you can download it and enjoy it uh, at your leisure. I've sat many a night from one to two watching uh, Amateur Logic TV, and I'm uh, glad to have uh, George and Tommy and Peter uh, present those shows. That, that's just great stuff. I wish uh, there was more of like that out there. I brought a couple pieces of equipment to show you. The radios have really gotten smaller over time. My first one was much, much bigger than this. Uh, this is a HF up through 6 meter and 2 meter in this small radio. 
And this is one of the things that I've uh, really started enjoying a lot uh, recently, as I had my granddaughter, nine years old, to help me put together these little QRP rigs. Uh, she would put the parts on the board and I would solder, and we spent a couple enjoyable hours putting together each one of these. And believe it or not, they worked. It was quite a thrill to make contact with something you just put together with a piece of wire strung through the living room um, laying over the couch. Um, a long time ago, you had to really work hard to get your antennas adjusted and you had to have a big tuner and dial the capacitor and set the inductors and all of that stuff. But now they've got these auto tuners, little small boxes that you can plug into your radio and it'll take care of most of the uh, complicated adjustments. So. Uh, Ham radio has really, really changed for the better. Um, I'd hope there'd be some, some um, young people here today. I had brought uh, an old keyboard that uh, you can type on and it sends Morse code if anyone's interested in that. Um, but you don't have to learn code anymore. That was one of the biggest stumbling blocks for me and that's why I was probably uh, um, through with college and out of the service and all that before I got my license because hard, code was very hard for me. It took me years to get it mastered. And uh, I'm a long way from being uh, fast now. But uh, I, I do enjoy it. I enjoy it more now than I ever did. And I think that's what they decided, that uh, if we could get people into the hobby, that they would find something they enjoyed, either public service, um, sending code, just rag chewing, all these different things I mentioned. Um, I need to tell you that there's three license classes. It does take an awful lot to, uh, to get started. 50 questions, I think, is the uh, number on the test. Uh, several ways to learn how to become a ham. You can get some of the ARL publications and read the training manuals. That one's called Tune in the World. Um, there's other groups that have training material. Um, there's the Gordon West people that have some series, uh, W5YI, there's stuff on the web, QRZ, that you can go through and just uh, take the test online till you get familiar and then come to a, a, a test, a session. And there's probably a test session almost every month somewhere in the area. We have one at the Red Cross about uh, every month or a couple of months. I know that there's one in Hattiesburg coming up. I just heard it on the evening net. Uh, so they're not too hard to find. You may have to go a few miles, but uh, there are people that are willing to take their time and uh, give you the test. And then they're willing to go and help you set up a station, spend some time, get you started, um, show you the basics. And it's really not that difficult. So if you have an interest, come, come talk to us. We'll, uh, we'll point you in the right direction. This uh, radio right here comes with two bottles of amplifier smoke. We're talking with John KC5KWZ. John, you're a viewer of AmateurLogic.tv. Yep, I watch every episode. Oh, <laughs> I have well. watched every episode. Well, we appreciate it. Has it inspired you in, in any way? Oh yes, I um, built the Soft Rock 40 kit, um, the transmit receive version, and I'm getting ready to test it out soon. Well, great. I'll be glad to hear how that works out. Let me know. Okay, and I'll, I'll if I can, I'll uh, try and send you a report on that. Oh, or maybe some video there you go yeah 
And yours is actually the transmit and receive version, unlike the one I had. So it'll be good to see how that works out. Right. That's. I'll be interested to see how it works out too. <laughs> what was the hardest part of, of building it? Um, winding the coils and making the transformer. Yeah, that's. That was, that was the hardest thing. That was my hardest part of it too. So did you use a hot air method or how did you solder? Oh no, I used just a regular, a, a solder iron. Just to, hopefully it worked out. All the voltages and all checked like they're supposed to, and a, the resistance they tell you to check for is, is well there. So hopefully when I fire it up, it'll do something. <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you for talking with us. Now the antennas that 99% of the people use today, a few more than that probably, are the basic wire antennas that, that uh, Mr. Hertz developed in the late 1880s. Uh, actually before that a little bit, but somewhere back in there. And then James Clark Maxwell did a bunch of theoretical stuff around 1880 something or another, and uh, set the basis for the theoretical work. Well, all these fellows that go to study antennas in college, then that's their Bible. Well, unfortunately, I don't totally understand some of the mathematics involved in that, curls and divs and all those kinds of things. And so I have to look at things from a simple viewpoint. So I thought you fellows might appreciate a simplistic view of what antennas really are. In its simplest form, it is a capacitor in series with a resistor. Now, the resistor is actually what we call the radiation resistance. Now, an antenna has a resistance, and depending on its configuration, that resistance will vary. Uh, you know, the theory says, okay, you put a dipole in free space, got 73 ohms resistance. Uh, if you put a vertical up, you know, it's half of that. I mean, those are some rules of thumbs, and those don't even hold very close either, because uh, there are a lot of variations of that theme. Now, the capacitor is actually the capacity between the two elements of the antenna. In the case of a dipole, it's the capacity between the two elements. In the case of a, a vertical, it's the capacity to ground, or theoretically, it's the capacity to the, the uh, radials. But the radials are the other half of the antenna. Now, when, when you look at the antenna, in order to be able to pass current through that radiation resistance, you have to have a resonant antenna. A couple of ways to get that. One is that you build the antenna basically a quarter of a wavelength long if it's a vertical or, you know, a half wave dipole. And that means the, uh, the inductance and, and the capacitance are equal and therefore they cancel out. And therefore you can put maximum current through that radiation resistance. Well, that's the simple theory. Now let me just allude to that a little bit more. And that is that when you have an antenna uh, as you pass current through that antenna, the current will develop a magnetic field. Now, the magnetic field, as it changes, in other words, as it increases or collapses, it will create an electric field. This is their basic concept of a generator, alternator, whatever you want to call it. So you, you pass current, you make a magnetic field, and that in turn creates an electric field. Now, unfortunately, those two fields are really 90 degrees out of phase because one created the other. Now, I might also comment that an electric field, as it collapses or increases, will generate a magnetic field on that same piece of wire. So this thing just goes back and forth. 
One of the unfortunate things about an antenna is that you have a very large electric field surrounding it because uh, the electric field and the magnetic field are 90 degrees out of phase. In order for the thing to radiate, they have to be in phase. In other words, they have to occur at the same time. Now, basically what happens is that as the, the electric field propagates, it, it propagates slower than the magnetic field. And when you get out to roughly a third of a wavelength from the antenna, they caught up with each other and they're basically now in time phase and they start radiating. Now, you can get deeper into it and say, well, okay, now the electric field and the magnetic field are always going to be orthogonal to each other. And that is that that one of them will be, if you will, vertical, the other will be horizontal. Uh, and, and now this gets you into, okay, what kind of an antenna do you really want and what kind of purpose do you want to use it for? Well, we all know that a good vertical antenna has a low angle of radiation along the ground, and that's a good thing for some applications. On the other hand, a dipole, if you stop and look at that, the current's going along the wire, and it creates the field such that it's up. So a horizontal antenna makes horizontal polarization, we call it, and the radiation then is, or, is uh, perpendicular to the antenna, and therefore your horizontal antenna radiates straight up. Now, depending on the height of the antenna, in the case of a dipole, you wind up with, with what we call a pattern that's, that's a, a, a function of the ground. In other words, if you put it at a quarter of a wavelength above ground, there's two signals coming out of the antenna. Well, just a, a signal, but it surrounds the antenna. Okay, so, but think of it as two signals. One of them going straight up, the other one going straight down. Well, the one going down is going to hit the ground, and it'll turn around and reflect off of it and go back. But now, if it's a quarter wave above ground, then that quarter wave goes down, turns around, comes back, 180 degrees uh, for that, that traverse in there. The quarter wave is 90 degrees, so halfway would be 180. Now, you get into problems where the, the radiation patterns can cancel uh, depending on, on where the antenna is located. So, generally, we, we like to have a dipole for maximum high-angle radiation to be a quarter wave above ground. If you put it at a half wave above ground, it turns out that you get almost complete cancellation and therefore, there's no high angle radiation, but rather your, your maximum signal now is at lower angles. But now you got another problem. The problem is that a signal that propagates along the ground will actually be absorbed if it's a horizontal polarized signal. In other words, a dipole is a lousy antenna to go along the ground. On the other hand, if you turn, it, turn the antenna vertical, if you build either a vertical or a vertical dipole, it is not absorbed by the ground in the same way, and therefore you get good uh, low angle radiation out of it. So that's, that's why you use a, a vertical antenna for AM broadcast. Now, if you want to get on 80 meters or something, you're really not going to be talking to anybody locally, so to speak, uh, on ground wave. What you want to do is go ahead and propagate at a high angle and let it come back down, and, and you will be, uh, get good communications around the area. Now, by the same token, if you want to talk more than about round number, 750 miles, then you really ought to be using a vertical antenna to get a, a low angle radiation out there at that distance. And that's about where the two cross over, where you have the signal from the vertical or the horizontal antenna 
will cross it roughly 750 miles. So for the longer haul stuff, you need a vertical. For the short haul, you need a horizontal. That says, well, now, let's think about that for a minute. Let's talk about 20 meters or 10 meters or 15 or whatever. So all of us put up a great big old beam antenna, a great big horizontal beam, and we wonder why we can't talk to somebody. Well, the problem is it's a horizontal antenna. The horizontal antenna tends to have a higher angle of radiation. Uh, if you get it, if you get that horizontal antenna high enough, it will begin to give you pretty good low angle radiation. But if you really want to work some DX, take that horizontal and, and flip it vertical, get that low angle radiation, and go out there and chase that DX with it. Now, on the other hand, you say, well, that seems to be a bit of a problem. And the problem is that it's a mechanical problem. You, you have the antenna, how do you turn it up and work it with the tower? Well, the tower is going to cause you some mistuning problems. So what you have to do is retune it for that. But if you'll do that, and a matter of fact, if you look around, I don't see it much anymore, but back in the heydays of CB, what'd they do? They had vertical antennas, right? But there again, the CB was predominantly uh, local stuff. So they really got good propagation along the ground. And then they found out, hey man, we can work DX. So now the CBers get on and talk all over the world with these vertical antennas. So they figured that out a long time ago, but most of the hams never got around to thinking that way. So if you really want to get out there, go use a good vertical antenna. And if you want a whole lot of gain out of it, just go ahead and turn your beam up so that it's vertical and then away you go. Well, that has some mechanical problems, but hey, you know, everything's got a problem somewhere, so you got to trade one of them for the other. The, uh, the, the theory, though, that if you really look at and want to look at what propagation looks like, you have to consider your antenna being somewhere above ground, and it's going to have a signal that's direct, and you have another signal that reflects off of the ground. Now, those two, if they are additive, that's a good thing. If they subtract, that's a bad thing. Well, now, if it's a horizontal antenna, they tend to subtract, whereas if it's vertical, they tend to add. And this has to do with the dielectric constant of the ground and all that other fancy stuff. The point is, though, that, again, if you want low angle, use a vertical. You want high angle, you know, to talk 75 meters around the local area out to, you know, rag chew out to a couple of three or 400 miles, use a good horizontal antenna. Uh, so that's the basis of, of, of designing what type of a system you really want. We've run across another familiar face here at the Hamfest. Hello, Mr. Jew. George, how are you today? Oh, doing pretty good. Did you have a good uh, ham fest? Jackson is always a, just a really nice ham fest. We always enjoy coming up here. Well, great. Uh, we've had a lot of comments on the tours of the, the factories, and uh, uh, we still thank you for letting us go in and have a look at all that. Well, we appreciate y'all coming down and doing that. Y'all did just a super job, very professional. Got a lot of comments uh, from those who watched it, too. Well, thank you. Uh, we're going to be doing some uh, more segments on some of your products here in the future that I, I think people will be interested in seeing, particularly the antenna analyzer. Oh, well, that would be great. I know uh, uh, lots of people would uh, like to know some of the other things it can do other than finding SWR. That, that would be very useful to a lot of hams. Well, I'm interested in seeing that myself, so that's one reason we're doing it, <laughs> just to see what all can be done. All right. Well, good to see you, and have a good ham fest.
All right, I'm buying this amplifier for Jimmy since he couldn't be here today. $350 for a Yezu FL2100B amplifier. That's a deal. That's a good deal. Thank you. Thank you. And Tommy is texting Jim right now to tell him that he's now the proud owner of an amplifier.